0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Lord, I pray you speak this morning. You open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and that we would receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, I want to say thank you, first of all, for spending your Easter uh, morning with us. If you're not visiting with us, I want to thank you for spending your Easter morning with us. So uh, we don't play favorites. Hey, how about that? Now, we are, we're continuing this morning in our series on the Gospel of John. We've been here basically the entire year, uh, and uh, we're, we're trying to take it a, a chapter at a time. This morning, we have reached chapter 20, which is a pinnacle moment in John's gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but not just a pinnacle moment in his gospel, it's the pinnacle moment in all of human history in truth. So it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. I'm going to read beginning in John chapter 20, uh, verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Instead, go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them the things he had, or that he had said these things. Now, I want to approach this passage this morning basically the same way that we've approached every passage in the Gospel of John, and that's looking at two sides. That's looking at the cultural side of what's taking place here in that moment, and that's looking at uh, a side of application for us today. So if you've been with us for the duration of this series, you've noticed by now that something uh, John loves to do in his Gospel is connect the person of Jesus Christ to the events, the characters, and imagery within the Old Testament. We've been seeing this in almost every chapter. The Gospel of John is saturated with these uh, references to the Old Testament, and it's 2,000 years later, so we have to seek them out, but his audience at that time would have recognized them immediately. Uh, Now, now the Bible uh, understand every word is significant. So we read it sometimes, and we're like, oh, that's not really a significant detail, No, if it's in the Word of God, it's there uh, with intention and purpose and full of meaning. So just two quick examples that I want to show you of that, that we see here. Uh, Back in verse 11, uh, this is imagery pointing to the Old Testament. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now in the Gospel of John, the angels basically have no role in the story other than to sit at the foot and at the head of where Jesus' body laid. And that is highly significant. Uh, why? Because John is painting an image that his audience would connect with immediately, one that would take them back to the book of Exodus. So way back in the book of Exodus, Moses, uh, God told Moses, I desire to dwell with my people, so I want you to build an ark. Uh, Not like the boat, but a, a vessel that would contain his presence. And he got to verse 10 of Exodus 25, and he began laying out the very specific instructions for building this ark. And finally, in verse 17, God told Moses, I want you to make a lid for the ark. And he called this lid the atonement cover, or your Bible might call it the mercy seat. And this is what he said in Exodus 25 about the atonement cover, about the mercy seat. He said, make an atonement cover of pure gold, uh, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim. A cherubim is an angel. It's an angelic being. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one of the angels, one of the cherubim on one end, and the second on the other, and make the cherub one piece is what he goes on to say. Uh, so what he says is, I want you to build this cover And I want you to build a lid of sorts. And within all of this is my presence and the instructions of God where I want you to place an angel at one end and I want you to place an angel at the other. And it would look something like the exact same image that Mary sees when she looks into the tomb. And what this tells us is the very first image we are given of the resurrection in the gospel of John is one that identifies Jesus as the mercy seat. Uh, now, what does that mean exactly? Leviticus 16 tells us what the, the purpose of the mercy seat was. Uh, it tells us that in that sacrificial system of the, the time, the high priest would come and he would make a sacrifice. He, he would kill an animal and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And, and we'll read that very quickly in Leviticus chapter 16 um, Uh, Beginning in verse 15, it says, He shall sprinkle the blood on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. When we see this image in the, the resurrection, what it is saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this image, that when the blood of the sacrifice begins to flow from the mercy seat, Atonement is made and the sins are forgiven, whatever they are. And Paul actually says this exact same thing in Romans chapter 3. He says, Christ is our mercy seat. He is the place where when the blood flowed down, our sins were uh, forgiven in that moment. And one more of those seemingly insignificant details in John 20, uh, we find it in verse 6 and 7 it says simon peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around jesus's head and the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Now, there's only one other place in all of the Bible where we find that uh, linen garments are intentionally left behind, and in fact, they're left behind because God commanded them to be left behind. And to me, this is evidence that this is all intentional and not coincidental. The reason for that is because guess where we find this event? It's the the exact same chapter we just read just a few verses later in Leviticus chapter 16. It takes us right back there. And verse 16 talks about how the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat brought about about the forgiveness of sins. On to verse uh, 23 in Leviticus, it says, then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and to take off the linen garments he has put on before he entered the most holy place. And he is to leave them there. And it's the exact same context that we have where the next verse says he leaves that place and he makes atonement for the sins of his people. He is ushering in the forgiveness of sins. And this is so fascinating because what we have just in the imagery within the tomb is identifying Jesus both with the blood, with the sacrifice, and with the high priest who is making the sacrifice, which would seem like a contradiction, but actually it's not. That's exactly what the New Testament says Jesus is. He's the high priest who makes the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice that brings about the forgiveness of our sins. So John was so purposeful about making these connections and it's not because it's just an interesting side note. It's actually for two reasons. The first is to connect with his audience, but even more importantly than that, it's to show that it's all been pointing to Jesus all along. That entire system of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. All of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. All of history was pointing to Jesus. Everything today points back to Jesus. Every need you have points to Jesus. Now, I want to tell you where you fit in to all of this, into the resurrection story. Sometimes if you read a passage of scripture, you have to really search for the application and find, how does this apply to me? You don't have to do that here because John actually tells us how all of this applies to me. Uh, This is something that John was really good about in all of his writings. When he wrote the book of Revelation, John said, I'm writing all of this to show you the things that must soon take place. He said, this this is why I'm writing it, to show you everything so that you're not surprised when you start to see it taking place. Uh, In one of his epistles, 1 John, he wraps it up in uh, 1 John 5.13. This is not his gospel. This is one of his later letters. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. He says, here's the reason that I have written this. I want you to have confidence that if you've placed your faith in Christ, you have eternal life. So what about the purpose of the gospel of John? Is he just uh, making sure there's a written record of Jesus's ministry? Is he writing it down for his own sake? Uh, John tells us exactly his purpose in verse 31 of chapter 20. It says, these things are written that you may believe, that you the reader or the listener may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says the entire purpose of this gospel that we've been breaking down and studying week by week is actually you. It's so that you would hear these words and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Church, faith is the foundation of Christianity. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. We're here today to talk about whether we have faith in in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means. Now, just a little uh, nugget for you. John talks about faith and belief nearly a hundred times in the Gospel of John. And throughout his Gospel, in the Greek language, he never once mentions faith as a noun. Every time he mentions it, it's as a verb. With great intention, John was saying, Your faith is not an inanimate object that just sets over there. Your faith is an action. It's something you do. You choose to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Central to our faith is the event we celebrate this morning, faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Now, from the moment of the resurrection, the very moment of the resurrection, skeptics have sought to disprove the resurrection. And this is really interesting because no one ever argued that the body was missing. In fact, right away, they never never disagreed about the absence of the body. They just called into question what happened to the body. It was was not a matter of was the tomb empty, it was a matter of why is the tomb empty. So uh, from the moment the tomb was empty, skeptics have attempted to explain it away. And the irony is, as you're gonna see in just a minute, most of the theories that attempt to disprove the resurrection require more faith to believe in them than just to believe in the resurrection itself so in matthew 28 i told you this started right away the bible says the jewish leaders pulled the roman soldiers aside and they paid them money and said "Uh, i want you to tell everyone you know that that the disciples came chased you off and stole the body from the grave. Start spreading that rumor. Somehow they overcame you, uh, took away your weapons, uh, beat you up. Whatever the case, just tell them, spread this rumor that the disciples stole the body. Now that doesn't exactly agree with the fact that the disciples later gave their lives and died based on this gospel because no one's ever going to die for a lie that they made up, but they didn't talk about that. Uh, A second-century Hellenistic Greek named Selkos or Kelsus placed the blame on Mary Magdalene. He called the resurrection a story that was based on hallucination by a hysterical woman. In the late 1700s and early 1800s, there were several prominent names, including a couple of men, who are known as theologians or scholars, uh, who began spreading what we call the swoon hypothesis. This is the theory that Jesus was never actually dead on the cross, that he was just injured, and he woke up in the tomb, and, and uh, he escaped. Now, there, this actually, it kind of took root back in the 1800s. Uh, there were three different forms of this, at least. There was a German theologian name, named Karl Venturini. Uh, think about the faith it would take to believe this. He theorized that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, that he woke up in the tomb and he began moaning, and there was a secret society going by the tomb that heard his moaning, chased off the guards, and rescued Jesus from the grave. There was another man, it was a German doctor by the name of Heinrich Pauli. He theorized that Jesus actually fell into a coma on the cross, and he woke up of his own volition in the tomb, and he escaped somehow. There is another 18th century theologian named Karl Barth. He proposed that Jesus did it on purpose. He faked his death with the help of Luke because Luke was a physician and therefore Luke gave him the medication, the anesthetics necessary to survive the cross and wake up three days later and escape the cross. Like I said, it takes more faith to believe some of these theories than just to place your faith in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But can I tell you, and you already know this, someone who doesn't want to find, uh, place faith in Christ will find a reason not to place faith in Christ. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, there was a, a, a critter that was getting into our flower garden. Uh, and, and it was digging up all of the flower bulbs. It was eating them, just destroying the, the garden. So uh, we had this problem last year, and we set out a cage, and, and we caught like four raccoons in, in a couple days. Uh, just lots of raccoons. I expected it to be the same thing this time. However, it was a little different. I set out the trap. I checked it the next morning, uh, and it wasn't a raccoon. It was a possum. Now, we were running late, uh, so I took the the cage that it was in, I went and sat it uh, over by the woods, and we left. Got back a little later than expected that evening, and I didn't want to just leave it in the cage, but I also didn't really want to just shoot it there in the middle of the night, so I did what we always do when we catch a critter or a pest that's destroying our yard. Uh, We think of someone we don't like, (laughs) and we take it over to their yard. So I said, come on, junior we're going to Travis's house. Uh, I say that because Travis is the most likable person I've ever met in my life. If you don't like Travis, you don't know Travis, or you're married to Travis. Just so you know, I asked for permission to say that because, no. No, we weren't going to Travis's house, but uh, we were going to take it out into the middle of nowhere and, and drop it off. Uh, Just let it run free into someone else's yard. But the possum, when I got there, was already dead. Before you judge me, I am aware that possums fake their death. I know that that's their defense mechanism, but... It wasn't just that this possum was not moving. Uh, I flipped the cage, I poked it. It had blood coming out of its mouth. The possum was dead. So I said, never mind, JR, you go inside. I'm just gonna go dump the corpse in the woods. So I took it out into the woods. I dumped the body out, and church, if that possum didn't hop up on all four and just prance (laughs) off into the woods. I learned two things that day. They are very good actors. And they are capable of laughing <laughs> because as it walked away, I'm pretty sure I heard it laugh and call me a moron. I, I cannot be certain about that, but I am not an expert in the field of possums, but I want to tell you about someone on the screen here. Greg's going to put a picture of her on the screen. Her name is Dr. Ali Bergeras, and she is the world's leading expert on possums. She is described as a possum advocate and rehabber and even has earned the title of possum ambassador. Last May, she released her first book all about possums and she even creates and sells possum-themed artwork on her website. And if you don't believe me, uh, you've heard of uh, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa and Van Gogh's Starry Night. This is her work. Uh, It's called happy possum and cupcake. So uh, by the way, you can get this blown up really big and put it in your living room for $500. Not a joke. So uh, not only are all of these things true about this woman, but there's one more thing that she can do. She can tell you if a possum is actually dead. Why? Because she is an expert. That is her field, and that is what she lives for. This is what she does. Can I tell you something about the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus Christ? They were not rookies at this. They were not names picked out of a hat. They were professional executioners. And even secular historians will tell you the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew how to make it a slow, painful, humiliating, and most of all, an effective death. When Jesus was taken down from the cross, church, there was not a breath of life remaining in his body until three days later. Until three days later when that earthquake took place and the stone was rolled away. And the angel declared again, he isn't here, he is risen, just like he said. Now I have two questions regarding this. The first is, do you believe it? And the second is, do you understand what it means? Because I want to show you something again in John chapter 20, uh, in verse 8. It says this, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. But the next verse says this. They still do not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So there are two things happening in this moment. There is belief, but there is also a lack of understanding. There is belief in the resurrection itself, but they also don't fully understand everything that's taking place. And I believe that that is where the majority of our nation is today. It might even be where you find yourself today. It's incredibly common that we believe in the resurrection, but we don't fully understand the significance of it. There are polls in in recent years that show the majority of Americans, two and three Americans, believe in the resurrection. I did not say two and three Christians. Two and three Americans believe in the resurrection, and even some who do not identify as Christians believe in the resurrection. In Great Britain, a recent poll showed that one out of every ten non-Christians believe in the resurrection. I would go so far as to say our nation is not divided over whether the resurrection took place. Our nation is divided over the significance of it because how can someone believe in the resurrection but not follow Jesus Christ? It's because they believe but they lack understanding. The thing is, church, Jesus said, you can hang every word he ever spoke on the resurrection. And if the resurrection didn't take place, you can discount everything he said. But he said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah and I'll give you the sign of the temple being rebuilt in three days. If this takes place, it validates every word I have ever spoken. It validates every promise I have ever made. It means, church, that again, we do not gather to remember a, a person who was, but a Savior who is. And it means, church, that when Jesus said through faith in him we can find salvation, that that is true. The Bible says that the cost of sin is death. We have a choice with that. We can spend eternity apart from Jesus Christ paying the price for our sin, or we can place our faith in Jesus Christ who already paid the price for our sin. And that is what we call salvation. That is what Christ offers. And can I tell you, salvation is offered to you this morning no matter how far gone you feel you are. No matter how much of a helpless cause you feel you are, the biblical narrative is Christ redeems the unredeemable and he loves the unlovable and he forgives the unforgivable. And I think of Thomas, Renee, if you would come. Uh, Thomas was a follower of Christ. We remember him by his doubts. In fact, Thomas said, unless I place my hand where the nails were, I refuse to have faith. I will not have faith. And then when he encountered Jesus Christ, he responded with one simple phrase, an eternity altering phrase, my Lord and my God. When you move from a place of just believing in the resurrection to understanding the consequences of the resurrection, you move into a place where you say, he is Lord and he is God. I want to close with this this morning. I mentioned that they, uh, when, when they tried to disprove the resurrection, uh, one of the r- initial rumors was, we'll say the disciples stole the body. But even secular history tells us that uh, 10 of the 11 remaining disciples at least gave their life for this. <coughs> Do you guys remember that famous picture of the Loch Ness mo- Monster? Uh, there was a man, I can't remember his name at the moment, but as he laid on his deathbed, he fessed up and he said I built that and took the picture (laughs) because when you're facing death there's no reason to live for the lie anymore 10 disciples face death crucifixion burning everything you can imagine and not a single one of them said oh it wasn't true we actually stole the body Uh, every one of them gave their life for this because it's a reality church and one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection is the life of those who believed in the resurrection and I want to put this on the screen and read it one more time one of the greatest pieces of evidence for the resurrection is the lives of those who believed in it And I wanted to put that on the screen because it should remain true today. One of the greatest evidences for the resurrection should be your life if you believe in the resurrection. If you have placed your faith in Christ, your life should be undeniable evidence of the reality of God. Can you stand with me, church? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes this morning. And I'm going to ask you, if you're in this place, we're not going to embarrass you. I'm going to ask you to slip your head, uh, hand up in a moment. If you're here this morning and you say, maybe I believe in the resurrection, but I don't live by the resurrection. I don't uh, uh, live according to to the consequences of the resurrection. I've never moved into that place where I say, you are my Lord and my God. And church, if you're here today and you say, I need to make that decision, would you slip your hand into the air for just a moment? this week's message don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week and as always from all of us at cranberry community church may god bless you